I'm so glad to be with you today. Take your Bibles and join me in the book of Genesis once again. I have so thoroughly enjoyed journeying through this book with you the last uh, number of weeks as we study this foundational book, the book upon which the rest of your Bible stands, Genesis. And we've seen some amazing stuff so far. We've seen the creation, and now we come to the other side of the creation as we enter chapter 3. But we have seen God create a pristine, perfect world. And it is, it is an amazing, flawless place. But you'll notice as you step outside and you take a look around and you turn on the news and you get online and uh, you engage with the world around you, it is not the world that God created. The world's a mess. Is that true? The world is a mess and it's getting messier every single day. How did we get into this? How did it go from perfection to what we see before us today? To, to whom do we ascribe the increasing dumpster fire that is planet Earth over the last uh, eons that have come and gone? If you ask some people, the blame uh, should be laying at the feet of, uh, well, you know, the Democrats. And some would say, no, it's the Republicans. And some would say, no, it's, it's, you know, it's big oil. That's what it is. No, it's big pharma. You see, no, it's the, it's the technocracy. No, it's the tree huggers. No, it's pop culture. It's the liberal media. It's all of these different people that, that people offer up as, as the ones who are responsible, you see. But is it fair to lay the blame for planet Earth and the state that we're in at, at the feet of any one human entity? No, it goes way, way further back than that. And what we have read is God creating, and day by day he says the same phrase, it is good. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Every day he says this. The one thing that he says is not good, he fixes. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. And he brought a solution for that. He created a mate. Now that's not to say that there was anything wrong with what he had made when he said it's not good for the man to be alone. It's merely that, that here's Adam and he's lonely, and so there's an incompleteness. And so God recognizes the incompleteness of Adam's existence, and he completes it. And he creates a helpmeet for Adam, a mate. It reminds me of that movie, Jerry Maguire, when Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger with tears in his eyes. He says, you complete me, you know. I only watch rom-coms if there's football in them, and so that's how I know that line. But uh, Adam literally could say that to Eve. And so she completed him because that was by the hand of God. And this was, in a perfect world, a perfect marriage. They had a perfect marriage. You've heard of a match made in heaven. That described this couple. It was a perfect marriage. The only perfect marriage that has ever existed existed in the beginning with Adam and Eve. They never had to deal with the hang-ups a lot of us deal with in our relationships. You know, She never said anything to Adam like you know, uh, talking about all the men she could have married. You know, Adam never said to her at dinner time, well, this isn't how mom used to make it. I mean, they had the ideal relationship. And if Genesis had ended in chapter 2, I mean, if this were a fairy tale, that's where it would have ended, right there. And they lived happily ever after, but we move on. And by the middle of chapter 3, the bottom has fallen out, not just of the world, but of their relationship. There is now a division between them. 
Most marriages encounter trouble that they have to navigate early on. They, they have to deal with, uh, you know, learning to manage a household and, and a budget and, uh, you know, making time for romance while uh, working for a living and all of these things. This couple, their first year hurdle was the temptation and fall under sin and the downfall of creation. That's, that's an amazing first year hurdle for a marriage. But we're going to look at how that went down. And what lesson can we glean from this text? Would you pray with me? And then we'll dive into this. Hey, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this wonderful text today. I pray that our eyes would be opened. God, that we would see what, we, what you want us to see as we study your word today. And not only the fact of why we are where we are, but who it is that sought to see us in this state. And the fact that we still contend with this individual today. And how we must stand against this individual, this being that seeks our destruction. And we ask your blessing upon our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's just break down how this happens. This thing called the fall of man. We're going to jump into verse 1 right away. It says, now the serpent. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God have, uh, has made. Okay, now so far we've been introduced to only three characters in this narrative. You've got God, you've got the man, Adam, and you've got the woman. And we know her name to be Eve, although uh, it has not said her name in the text at this point. Uh, but it's God, the man, and the woman, that's it. Now we are introduced to a fourth character, and it's this serpent here. And we're going to see that this serpent has ill intent, and he's going to go after Mankind, but first he's going to target this woman. Now, who is this serpent? What is his identity? Now, I know that you already know. Most of you already know. But let's find out how we know that. And we're going to leave briefly the opening uh, book of your Bible, and we're going to go to the last book in your Bible. I'm going to show you something from Revelation 12. You know, I don't know if you remember in school, you'd ask your teacher a question, maybe in math or something like that, and, and your teacher would inform you the answer was in the back of the book. And so we're going to go to the back of the book to find the answer to the question, who is this serpent? And in Revelation 12, 7, it says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now drop down to verse 9. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down. Michael defeats him. It says, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, so here we've got a question raised by the first book of the Bible and it's answered by the last book of the Bible. And our ancient enemy, the answer to that question in your notes is, he is Satan. That is our ancient enemy, Satan. Uh, or as we call him, the devil. He is our ancient foe. And so this serpent is identified as the devil. And his very name is mentioned in Revelation. His name is Satan. And that is a Hebrew word, and it means adversary. Adversary. Now, you should know that that's not his original name. That is not the name that, that was given to him. How did he come into being? Well, he's not God, and so that means that he was created. God created this being. Now, why, why would God create the devil? Did God create the devil? 
Why would he do that? Well, we're going to get some backstory here. And I want to show you some other passages because you need to know your enemy. If you don't know your enemy, you're not going to know how to, how to deal with him. And so we're going to look at another Old Testament verse in Ezekiel 28. In verse 1, God speaking his prophet. says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord, prince of Tyre. So the prophet is addressing this individual called the prince of Tyre. The word there for prince is Nagid, and it could be translated as ruler. Uh, he rules this place called Tyre. That was an ancient Mediterranean seaport, very important city. And the Lord is addressing this individual. And we know that this is a human being because of what he goes on to say. He says, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man. And no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. And so the Lord is saying to this individual, you're, you're, you're proclaiming yourself to be a God, but you're not a God. You're a man. You are a mere human being. It says so right here. He's flesh and blood, but he's filled with pride, and he claims deity. And so God uh, denounces him and pronounces divine judgment on him. But if you move on down from that verse to verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. The king, different word, not prince, not Nagid, but in the Hebrew, it's Melech, king. Everybody knows a king is more powerful than a prince. And so this is a different individual, the king of Tyre. He's got more power. He's got more authority than the prince of Tyre that we just read about. So are we looking at another human being? Let's read on. He says of this king, he says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now watch this, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now I assure you, there were no human rulers in the garden of Eden. There were no human rulers, except in the sense that Adam was given dominion. And this is not Adam. And it says, every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And he lists all these gemstones. And gemstones have facets, and they've got surfaces that reflect light. And he goes on, he says, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day you were created. They were prepared. And so we see right here, this individual is a created being. He's not born. He's not born. And then it says in verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. A cherub. What? What is a cherub? Maybe you have seen paintings or sculptures depicting cherubs. And they always, uh, from medieval times, seem to portray them as these fat little kids with wings. You know, they kind of look like cupids. Sometimes we fawn over a baby and we call him a cherub or something like that. That is not the biblical presentation of a cherub. Uh, if you recall singing songs or hymns growing up like holy, 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 you sing about cherubim and seraphim. Those are angelic beings that the Bible talks about. And we are going to see at the end of chapter 3, cherubim. That's the plural form of cherub. They're going to be standing guard at the entrance of Eden with a flaming sword. So they are fearsome, angelic beings. So here he is. This is someone who was in Eden. So he's on the earth from its earliest days. He's described as angelic in origin. And he goes on in this 
uh, text and says, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And so what we learn is this angelic being has been around since nearly the beginning on earth. He was in Eden. He had the signet of perfection. That means he was created without blemish. He'd been given authority. And apparently he is just the wisest, finest, greatest of God's heavenly creations. And he's intended by God to oversee everything that the Lord has made. And there's a very important role that he's uh, given that goes along with that. And you'll notice in verse 13, it speaks of his settings and engravings. We read about that. And if you've got a King James Version, what it says is, uh, instead of settings and engravings, it refers to tabrets, tabrets rather, or timbrels and pipes. What in the world are timbrels and pipes? Well, those are musical instruments. It's like tambourines uh, and, and wind instruments here. And so what we can discern is that this being was created for worship. He was, in effect, the worship leader of heaven, and his job was to lead the entire angelic host in glorifying God the Father. That was his job, okay? But in doing that job, as he leads in worship, he himself develops a taste for worship, and something happens. I'm going to show you another passage in Isaiah before we get back to Genesis, because I promise we're going to get back there, but you need to know about this individual. In Isaiah 14, 12, it says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Day star, son of dawn. Now again, if, you, if you're reading the King James, it doesn't say day star. It says Lucifer. O Lucifer, son of dawn. Now Lucifer is a Latin name. It means light bearer. Light bearer. And the last passage we read in Ezekiel describes him as his garment is covered with gemstones. Gemstones reflect light. And so he's the light bearer. He's the one that reflects light and glory back onto God. And his name is Lucifer. Lucifer. Luz. Spanish. If you know Spanish, Luz means light. Comes from the Latin. Now, Latin didn't exist when this was written. And so that is not his original name. That is the Latin version of his name. This is a Hebrew uh, text right here. In the Hebrew, the name here, it's not Lucifer, it's not Daystar, it's Hillel. That is the name. That is the name given to this angelic being in, in the beginning. And we don't know with certainty what Hillel means, uh, although it sounds a lot like another Hebrew word, halal. Halal. And halal means to shine. And it sounds like another word that we have often said. Maybe you said it. Maybe you shouted it in our worship time. It's the word hallelujah. Right? And so it's a word that has worship connotations. Halal can also mean to boast. And when we worship, that is what we're doing. We are making our boast in the Lord. We're boasting about God. That is the only time that boastfulness is appropriate, is when we boast in Him. He is worth boasting about. Amen? And so I want you to watch what happens when Hillel is leading heaven in worship. He goes from boasting about Yahweh, the Most High, to boasting about himself. And so here's what Isaiah 14, 13 says. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. 
He says, I will, a total of five times in that text. Houston, we have a problem. His boastfulness has changed its object. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And so in verse 15, God's not going to stand for that. You don't get to elevate yourself above me. And so judgment is imposed in verse 15. He says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. You wanted to go to the far reaches of the north. I'm going to send you to the far reaches of the pit. And Sheol is the Hebrew name for the spiritual realm of the dead. You see this all over the Old Testament. It, it includes the place that we would call hell. And so Halel, Lucifer, Satan, this being, whatever you want to call him, he is cast out of heaven. He's shut out of the Lord's presence. Now, you might say, Pastor Scott, how do you know this is Satan? I haven't seen the name Satan here. I see, I see Halel, Lucifer, uh, uh, Daystar, whatever, but there's, there's no name Satan in what you said. How do you know this is Satan from Jesus? Here's what the Lord Jesus says in, in Luke 10. Uh, the context in Luke 10, he sent his disciples. There are 72 of them at the time. They're, they're sent out to do ministry. They return at the end of that. They're all excited. And part of what they've been doing is they've been casting out demons. And they're celebrating. And so Jesus, in that context, he just speaks and he utters this statement. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan. He doesn't say Lucifer. He doesn't say Halel. He uses this name Satan. And so this connects that elite angel that was cast out for boasting about himself to our adversary, our enemy, the devil. And this new name means adversary. He's gone from being the day star to being the adversary. And he's not just God's adversary, he's your adversary. And that's who we are seeing here in Genesis chapter 3. And there he appears as a serpent. Now, what's he got to do with a serpent? What does Satan have to do with a serpent? Well, let me assure you, Satan did not appear to Eve in his natural, corrupted form. Okay? He appears as something familiar to her, something that already existed in the garden. A Hebrew word for serpent is nachash. Nachash. And that is simply the word for reptile. I know when you picture this uh, unfolding here in Eden, you're picturing a snake. Because that is what we've been raised to, to see when we hear this story. It's Eve and she's looking at a tree and wound around one of those branches is some kind of a snake. But this does not necessarily mean snake. This word, it just means reptile. And it could literally be any real reptile. But it is a, an actual reptile. And I believe at the time it is upright. Because it's not until after the curse of sin, that God condemns the serpent to crawl on its belly. And so I believe that this is a reptile that is familiar to Eve. The text says he was more crafty than any beast of, of the field that the Lord God had made. He's made. He's a created being, a created beast. He's crafty. What makes him the craftiest? He's the craftiest because the, the most powerful, most intelligent spiritual being that God ever created now has possessed it. And so you've got Satan having assumed the form of this nakash, this creature in Eden, and he speaks to this woman. And Eve is not alarmed. She is not uh, 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 perturbed or startled by this in any way. I mean, why should she be? Uh, I see a lot of posts this time of year about copperheads. Uh, about a month ago, two months ago, people started seeing copperheads, and so they're warning everybody, you know, look sharp, okay, be aware, danger. 
Uh, we have a pond, and we had a friend come and visit, and she was down there, and she loved the, the, the area down behind her house. It was very pretty, and then our kids found a snake, and our friend never went back to the pond. And a lot of you have deep fears about snakes, and that is, that is common to humanity, and I think it finds its origin in this story. I really do. But the point here is that Eve is not startled by the snake. There is nothing for her to be afraid of. Now, you may be thinking, well, even if she's not afraid of a serpent, this one talks. And that's kind of freaky. Well, I don't know what to tell you. She's not worried about it. But here's his strategy. We're going we're gonna to see this strategy unfold on the part of the serpent. And he says to the woman, did, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And here is tactic number one in the serpent's strategy. In your notes, he's seeking to undermine God's word. Now, God's word is central in the creation account. We saw him create day by day. How did he do it? He spoke. Let there be, and there was. And so, by what he's asking here, this serpent is undermining God's word. He is causing it to be suspect. And I want you to notice this is the first question in the whole Bible. There's never been a question asked until now. Now, that doesn't mean that questions are bad. I think questions are wonderful. God created us to ask questions. Questions are very, very good if they're honest questions. This is not an honest question. This is a deliberately misleading question. He is trying to deceive by asking this. And I want you to sense the subtext here. First, he refers to God in a disrespectful way. We saw in Genesis 1.1, it says in the beginning, God and the name of God there was Elohim. And we talked about how that is a a generic uh, name for God. It refers to his plural nature, uh, the the three persons of the Godhead there in the the being, the, the, the trinity of God, Elohim. But after that, in chapter 2 and from then forward, he is referred to as the Lord God. And two words are used, Yahweh and Elohim. Yahweh is translated as Lord, and that is the name of God. It is a holy name. It speaks to the holiness and the authority of God. In fact, when the Hebrew scribes would be uh, writing out the scripture, whenever they would get to the name Yahweh, they'd throw their pen away and they'd grab a new pen and they'd start writing. That's how holy the name of Yahweh was. Well, here, Satan just dispenses with that name altogether. He's not going to refer to him as Lord. No way. He's going to call him by his generic name. And then he intentionally misquotes God. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, did God say that? God didn't say that. He didn't say they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. And so the way this is phrased, he is directly challenging God's word. Did God actually say? And you can just... You can just see, you can hear his, his, his uh, sarcasm in there. You can hear his, his incredulity in all of this. Has he changed his MO today? Does he cause people to question God today? Absolutely. He causes us to question God's word all the time. Every time a young person goes off to college, a Christian young person, and they set foot in a liberal Bible professor's classroom, and they hear that professor say, well, you know, the Bible is a man-made document. It's been mistranslated over the centuries numerous times, and we have to use you know, textual criticism to really divine the meaning. That's the voice of the serpent. 
Every time you read a blog post that says something about, you know, the Bible's just allegorical, it's just poetry, that's the voice of the serpent. Every time you hear somebody say, you know, the Bible is just is a, is a cultural thing, and we can see how out of touch the culture was in those days, it's not really relevant to today. We have to reframe it. We have to contextualize it for today. That is the voice of the serpent. And so he is a liar, and he makes God's word suspect. And then he moves on to a second tactic in your notes. He begins to question God's love. He questions God's love. Now, in the last chapter, we saw the method of God. God creates the world in perfection, and he says to Adam, all you see is yours. Everything in your line of sight, you have access to. Access, 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 dominion, dominion, dominion. It's all yours. What is that? That is permission. He gives vast, far-reaching permission. There's one minor prohibition. There's this tree in the midst of the garden. Okay? Don't eat of that tree. So vast permission, minor prohibition with a severe penalty. Okay? If you eat of that tree you'll die. Vast permission, one minor prohibition, severe penalty. Now, this serpent, what does he do? He takes that, that method of God and he, he twists it. First, he just ignores God's permission. Just doesn't even reference it. Pretends it's not there, never mentions it. And then he exaggerates the prohibition. God said you can't eat from any tree in the garden. What a liar. He's just painting God in this light. And now Eve is new at this. She's never been asked a question before. I mean, she's, she certainly never questioned God. She had no reason to do that. Have you ever wondered why God put the tree in the garden in the first place? If he didn't want them to eat of the tree, why did he put the tree in the garden? I think that's a fair question. You've heard me say this, that the ultimate purpose of man is to worship God. We are to worship God. How were Adam and Eve to worship God? Were they to, you know, walk around the garden singing Waymaker? No. He gave them vast permission. He gave them a will. And then he said, there's this one, one, there's this one thing. Don't do this one thing. They had to be accountable to him. And through their obedience in this one prohibition, they would worship God. See, obedience is worship, okay? Okay? Worship is not just you getting dressed up, coming to church on Sunday, singing a bunch of songs, smiling, saying amen at the appropriate time, raising your hands, slap each other on the back, and then you go out and you live however you want. Obedience is worship. We obey. That's how Adam and Eve would give glory to God. And so Eve has posed this question, and she's new at this. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden. And she's sort of stumbling into a rebuttal here. And she corrects the serpent to her very minor uh, credit, but she's, she's naive. She's Eve, and she's naive, okay? I mean, you've heard the expression, well, I wasn't born yesterday. Well, she pretty much was. I mean, she's days, maybe, uh, weeks at the most, old. And, but what she has, I'll say this, she's got knowledge of the Creator, She's got knowledge of her husband. She's got knowledge of this garden, of all creation. And that knowledge, my friend, would have been enough for her to answer this question. It would have been enough. There is a correct response to the serpent. She doesn't give it. She doesn't give it. She says, well, God did say 
that we could eat from the trees of the garden. And she goes on to verse 3. She says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And you can almost hear her stumbling her way through this. couple things. She's already gone wrong. She's already gone wrong right here. We think of the fall as, you know, eating the fruit. Uh, the fall is already underway right here because she's talking to this serpent. She is engaging her tempter in conversation. You don't converse with your tempter. And she is trying to, to debate him or to reason with him. First of all, he deliberately misquotes God. He maligns God in that he questions God's love. And that, that means if you're misquoting someone, then you're trying to paint them as a liar. And Eve would know what God said about his creation. In fact, every creature would know what God said about creation. And so him saying this ought to raise some red flags right here. She should have said, uh, get lost, Nakash. You know, because here he is, he's like, man, you know, God's strict, isn't he? It's kind of harsh. Wow. You know, man, your dad is strict. Won't let you eat from any tree in the garden. Eve should have said, what are you talking about? God is good. God's given us everything. Get out of my face. You've given me nothing. Beat it. She doesn't do that. What does she do? She tries to reason. She tries to counter with facts. She tries to engage in conversation. What are we supposed to do? Rebuke him and flee. Flee. You know, well, can you imagine, what if, what if Joseph, when Potiphar's wife came up to him and, and she was like, Joseph, don't you want to get with this? <laughs> what if he just said, Madam, I suggest, if you will, that we sit down and dialogue about how this might be detrimental. I mean, that, that's not what we do. What did Joseph do? He took off. Left his cloak, you know? And so Eve should have rebuked him and got out of there. That's what we got to do. And she doesn't. She stays there, and she tries to reason. And what does she end up doing? She ends up misquoting God. She says that he said, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said, don't touch the tree, or you'll die. Now, I don't think it would have been a good idea to touch the tree. If you're not supposed to eat from the tree, you probably shouldn't touch the tree. You know, don't eat from that tree. You got it, but we could touch it, right? I mean, that's probably not the smartest. But the point is, when you ascribe something very specific to God and you attach death to it, what do we call that? Legalism. That is legalism right there. And that is a faulty gospel. And so you can't, you know, you can't engage in legalism. Legalism we've seen in churches. You know, if you commit this specific sin, you're going to hell. If you don't look this way, you're going to hell. If you do these things, you're going to hell. If you don't read this particular Bible translation, you're a sinner. Legalism. And so Eve is not considering the love of God. She's only focused on the justice of God, and that is an incomplete view of God. And she's probably already, as these words are coming out of her mouth, you know, he said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's thinking, wow, that is strict. I can't even touch it. I can't even, I can't even be near it. And the serpent, remember, is crafty. And he knows he's good, man. He's good at what he does. And in verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, oh, you will not surely die. No. He's straight up calling God a liar now. 
He is countering God. No, God didn't tell you the truth. This is unequivocal, and he knows he can get away with it. She hasn't rebuked him yet. And so this is the next tactic in your notes is to dismiss God's justice. See, Eve is only considering justice. She's not thinking about the love of God, and she's operating in fear. He attempts, the serpent attempts to take that fear away. You're not going to die. No, no. There's no such thing as death. There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as punishment. There are no consequences. Sin is really not a thing. No, you, 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 you deserve this. God won't punish you. God won't punish you. He's still saying this today. You know where he's saying this today? In the church. The doctrine of hell is being denied in churches. The doctrine of the atonement is being denied in churches. No, no, no. God, God does not disapprove of, of your lifestyle. He loves you the way you are. He wants you to be how you were created. Whatever makes you happy, God wants that. He's not going to punish your sin. Sin is really just a term that we have crafted. Really, sin, to get right down to it, is is the things that man does to one another that displeases God. But you can choose to live however you want. He's not going to send you to hell. Hell isn't even real. It's a construct that we created to control each other. And and the idea that there would have to be a payment for sin, God would never do that. that. That's something that pagan cultures do. No, no, and the idea that he would require blood and sacrifice from his own son? What kind of cosmic child abuser are we talking about here? Why, that's not God. God is love. And that's the voice of the serpent. And Satan has said this from the very beginning. There's no hell, Eve. There's no death, Eve. There's no sin, Eve. This is good news. I'm giving you good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. This is the first false gospel right here and Eve starts to question and she's logically putting it together well if there's no sin there's no death there's no hell there's no punishment then why doesn't God want me to have this fruit why wouldn't he want me to be happy why wouldn't he want me to have it and the serpent goes on in verse 5 for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like him knowing good and evil And so what he's doing now in your notes is he's beginning to impugn God's character. He's already questioned God's love. Now he's claiming there's a massive character flaw in God. Here's the the subtext here. God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because, you see, God hates competition. He's a jealous God, you see. God can't stand to share the spotlight. He can't handle anybody rising uh, to his level. No, no, no. First thing he'll, he'll want to do is to keep you away from that. See, that's something I know about. We can't have anybody on your level, can we, God? No. See, you can just hear his issues dripping through this conversation. He is bitter. He is warped over being shut out of heaven. And he will do anything he can to hurt God. And now God's got this new, precious, prized creation. And Satan's looking at humanity. He's like, you stupid humanity. You think you're all that. God, God calls you, you, his greatest creation. I was his greatest creation. I'll show you, God. I'm going to mess up your precious little baby and he does and he's good at it and the reason he's effective is because partly he's speaking the truth now part of what the devil's saying to eve is true not the part about god's character not not the lies that he's telling it's about 
how she will be like him if she eats this fruit. Oh, she's, she's not going to be like him in his power, in his authority, but she'll be like him in that she will know good and evil. She will. And incidentally, that's never been a secret. He's never, God's never kept that from her. It's in the name of the tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they were not meant to know evil. And in verse 6, Eve buys this hook, line, and sinker. Verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And in your notes, here is the final tactic. Awaken pride. It was to be desired to make one wise. Pride is the root of all sin. And here in Eve, pride is now awake. I want to be like God. Now it starts innocent enough. I mean, if you think about it. But it's still wrong to want to put yourself on God's level. I want to be like God. Wasn't that kind of what got Satan kicked out of heaven? And so he's using the same thing that got him excommunicated to try to destroy mankind. But now Eve has rationalized that desire. I mean, it seems like a worthy pursuit. I mean, after all, she's thinking, well, I love God. I want to honor God. What better way to honor God than for me to be like God? And here's the irony. Eve was like God in that there was no evil in her. There was no evil in her. But now, here's the problem. She has rationalized her desire, excuse me, she's using her desire to be like God, which is a good desire, but she's trying to use that to rationalize her disobedience. You don't get to be like God by disobeying God. It doesn't work like that. But she, she partook of that tree. Now, there was, she didn't eat some magic fruit and suddenly know good and evil. That's not how this works. That tree was not evil. In and of itself. That tree, all of God's creation is good. That tree was good. That was a good tree. It's the disobedience. It was the disobedient act by which she came to know that which she was never meant to know. And it goes on, it says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where's he been? Where, where's he been? Now, it might occur to you something is off kilter here. God created everything, and there's a sequence. We saw the sequence. He creates man. And then he creates the woman. And when Satan sets out to ruin mankind, he doesn't set his sights on the man. He sets his sights on the woman. And then later, he goes on to the rest of creation. And so the question you might have is, in the New Testament, our sinful state is connected to the sin of Adam. For through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And therefore, all sinned, right? So our sinful state is attributed to him. We read this account, and here it's Eve who sinned First, what's the deal? We're, it's clear from Scripture that, that Adam was the head of the human race. That is clear. There is apparently a divine design for the genders uh, as well. We see that in marriage. Biblically, we, we studied this when we studied Ephesians. Okay? It has nothing to do with male superiority. It has to do with God's design. And when these two later hide from God, God's going to call the man out. Adam, where are you? Okay? And Adam's going to present himself. God's going to question the man first. Okay? And there's a reason. It's because the man is the head of the race. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22 makes it clear that he is our representative. Okay? He represents all of us. And so when he sinned, we all sinned. It's called headship. And in 1 Timothy 2, 14, Paul makes a point. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, male chauvinists love that verse. And they point to that. They go, See, see, Adam was not deceived. It was the woman. That doesn't absolve Adam of anything. It doesn't absolve him of anything, you see. Because all, this, all that verse means is that Eve was deceived first, uh, and she sinned. Uh, Adam was not deceived at that time because Adam was physically present when God gave the command. He couldn't be deceived. He heard it with his own ears. He knew what God said. Adam was told, don't eat of this tree. He had the same information Eve had. He just heard it directly from God. Eve hadn't been created yet at that point. And so he was not, Adam was not directly duped by the serpent, but he had a role that God had given him of headship over creation, over this marriage. It was God ordained, he was a protector, and he fell down in his responsibilities. And because of his poor judgment, he didn't get deceived by a serpent. He was handed fruit by his beautiful wife, and he ate. When what he should have said is, we're not doing this. I know better. And God has ordained me to lead here and to be a godly example. And he didn't. And he was culpable. And because he's the head of the race and represents us all, we are culpable. And so they fell. And here are the repercussions. As we look at verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew what, that they were naked. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That seems pretty pathetic, doesn't it? Can you, can you just picture them in their silly little loincloths, their silly little fig leaves that have been sewn together? And so here are the results of sin. In your notes, you got shame, and it's immediate. It's immediate. And we all possess shame, right? We all have a sense of shame. Now, some people are less modest than others. But there is innately in humanity a sense of shame. But there's also a result of this sin our, 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 is our propensity to have man-made solutions which are insufficient solutions. We always want to fix things our way, right? Uh, I could take care of my mess. I can fix this. I know I, I screwed up, but I could fix it and nobody will be the wiser. And it's this, this uh, human uh, flawed means of covering our own, own human flawed nature. And we all revert to this. I, I, I remember when I was growing up, every summer I'd go to Pineville, Missouri. And who lives in Pineville, Missouri? My 92-year-old grandfather. Or as I call him, Papa. And so every summer growing up, I'd go to Papa's farm and had the best time ever. There's so many fun things to do on that farm. You could go fishing. You could go hunting. You could uh, swim in the creek. You could canoe. You could jump off a rope into the water. You could, you could do all of these. You could shoot fireworks off, whatever you wanted. It was a blast. And one of my favorite things to do that I told my kids about. By the way, you got to be careful what stories to tell your kids. <laughs> things that you did when you were their age. I love to ride Papa's four-wheeler. He had a four-wheeler. And I would start, he lived on top of a hill in an old house that he'd built long, long ago. He overlooked his farm there. He had 
man, chicken houses and cattle, and he had crops and all this. And he had this gravel road that went down that hill, and it kind of went back around in front of those chicken houses and went through the woods, up the backside, back up to the house. And I would take off in that four-wheeler, and I would blitz down that hill, man, as fast as I could go, and I'd hit these dips and get air and all this stuff, and I'd come up through those woods, and I would just, man, I would just circle around that hill as fast as I could. And there was one particular time my father had told me, son, slow down. You're going to kill yourself. You will surely die, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, back off, old man. I'm having fun. Don't you want me to have fun, right? And so I ignore the warning, and I get on that four-wheeler, and I, I'm, I'm deciding I'm going to set a record now. I'm going to do this as fast as I've ever done it. And I take off down that hill, and I'm, I'm pedal the metal. There's a concrete slab at the bottom of that hill, and it kind of juts out a little bit. If you hit it just right, you can get air. And I did. And I'm airborne in this thing. And about halfway through my arc, a thought occurs to me. I've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> and I can sense the back tires rotating up over my head. This thing's going end over end. And so instinctively, I ditch. And I hit the ground hard, and I roll several times, and there's a big cloud of dust. This four-wheeler lands on the handlebars, bounces, and lands on all four tires, and it's still running. And it all happened in the blink of an eye, very, very fast. And my first immediate thought is shame. Did my parents just see this? I got to get out of here. I got to hide before they see me. And so I run. I get on the four-wheeler, and I hightail it into the woods. Well, my parents did see it. They were watching through the window. They saw me flip that thing, and then they lost sight of me. And so they are racing down that hill on foot to find what they can only assume is a body. But they get down there, and I'm not there. But I'm, I'm watching them through the trees. I'm in the woods. I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I'm thinking, I got a plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slowly creep up the back of the hill to Papa's house. I'm going to get off the four-wheeler, go inside, clean myself up, and then I'll beat them to the house. And when they come back, I'll just be like, nothing ever happened. And no one will be the wiser. It was a beautiful plan. And then my stupid little brother ruined it. He spots me between the trees. He runs over. He goes, what'd you do? And here I am, I got gravel in my hair, I got dirt streaks all over me, I got blood dripping down the side of my cheek, and I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, did you flip the four-wheeler? I'm like, no. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? And I was doubling down on my stupid little fig leaf story that anybody could see through. It was so obvious, and that's what this pair is doing right here, and that is human nature. And they try to cover their sin, and it's inadequate. And it, in our message next week, we're going to see God present a picture of a covering. And this covering will be emblematic of another, another covering through Jesus Christ, and that one will last forever. And by the way, speaking of Jesus, you know, he was tempted just like Eve. In fact, he had the exact same tempter that Eve did. But it was a very different outcome. And Satan employed the same exact MO with Jesus that he did with Eve. 
Hey, Jesus, you hungry? What are you out here fasting? What, God doesn't want you to eat? Why don't you turn these stones to bread? Hey, hey, Jesus, um, you know, you want, you want to prove your worth? Huh? Why don't we go to the top of the temple? You could throw yourself off. You will not surely die. Huh? Hey, Jesus, you see all this? You can have it if you'll just do what I say. And you will be like God. You see? But Jesus wouldn't have any of that. His response, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then he told that devil to get lost. He didn't cave like Eve. He wasn't spiritually AWOL like Adam. What did he do? He affirmed the character and the word of his father because he knew him. He knew his father. He knew he was good. You say, Pastor Scott, I can't do that. That's Jesus. You don't understand. I'm not that strong. I'm nowhere near that strong. You don't, you don't know, okay? You don't know the, the, the temptations that I face. I'm too weak. I'm not strong enough. Neither am I. But the good news is, he is. And he is with us. And we need to rely on the one who successfully resisted temptation. Man doesn't resist temptation. You don't rely on man. You don't rely on self. It was established from Genesis chapter 3. We're not reliable. Christ is. How do we respond to temptation? We do the opposite of Satan's strategy. In your notes, when Satan undermines God's word, we claim God's word. When Satan questions God's love, we embrace God's love. When Satan dismisses God's justice, we understand God's justice. When Satan impugns God's character, we trust God's character. And when Satan awakens our human pride, we rebuke pride and we get out of there. We flee. Because we are empowered by Christ to do that. And Christ is the one who can crush that serpent's head. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm looking forward to next week. We're going to see the aftermath of what we just read. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon all of these Christ followers here today. They will invariably face temptation this week. They will face an adversary this week. Help them to hold fast to your character, to your word, to know your love, to have a complete view of who you are, that we may walk in completeness and stand against our adversary. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.